I represent not only my own views, but a very large and, and deep tradition of the study of language that integrates society and culture and the way people communicate as, as uh, so integrated and so connected that it's impossible to study one without the other. Um, and so I wouldn't want people to think that my principal views are, are unique to me. I have a lot of unusual views, but they come from a very old and venerable tradition. And I want people to know that there are many ways to think about language. And I do not claim that it's my way or the highway. What I do say is that there's a number of, there's a lot of evidence that has not traditionally been considered in, under, in the understanding of human language, at least not in the past 50 years. And it ought to be considered. And here are my reasons why it should be considered. Welcome to The Story of Language, an original podcast series about language, linguistics, cognition, and culture. My name is Christian Saunders, and I am an English teacher. And throughout this series, I will be in discussion with Dan Everett, linguist, anthropologist, philosopher, and author. In this episode, you will meet Dan, and we will talk about the story of his life, including his upbringing near the Mexican border, his research stays with hunter-gatherers in the Amazon jungle, hunting giant anacondas, his famous disagreement with Noam Chomsky, and what his lifetime of work can tell us about language, thought, and being human. This is episode one of The Story of Language. Mr. Dan Everett, this is episode one of The Story of Language. Yeah, I'm very excited about this. Yeah, me too. I I'm, I'm really excited. And since this is the first episode um, of the series, I thought that um, rather than dive straight into talking about language, it would be nice if people got to know a little bit about you and who you are in your life, especially since your life has been so interesting. In fact, um, it's the subject of this book. Don't Sleep, There Are Snakes, which is um, highly recommended to anybody with an interest in language and and the world, maybe. So so I was hoping that we could sort of start, you know, at the very beginning. Why, why not? So you, you grew up on a farm? Yes, uh, I grew up in a, in a very rural part of Southern California near the Mexican border. And um, my first memories, we lived in a, um, in a trailer park. My stepfather was a... Um, um, he, he had a job and his family owned a farm and we lived, then we moved to live on that farm for some time. Um, and, and so the day was, uh, was getting eggs from chickens and, uh, milking cows. And, uh, I would go out to the field as early in my, some of my earliest memories are going out to the pasture to bring the cows. in. we had about 54 head of dairy cattle and we brought them in and, uh, milk them uh, every morning. Wow. So it was really, really a kind of, um, you know, a very rural kind of upbringing. Yes, it was. It was. And, uh, you know, I just remember on, uh, on Sundays, we didn't go to church, but um, 
My grandmother would walk out to the uh, chicken pen and take two chickens and uh, and and end their lives. And it was uh, we we prepared them for Sunday dinner. That's what we had every Sunday: were two fried chickens. And and at you know because I'm interested about when your interest in language kind of developed. I mean, did you have an interest in languages even when you were younger? Yes, I did because. We were surrounded, our, our little farm was surrounded by the cabins of illegal immigrants. I mean, what today would be called illegal immigrants. They were just farmhands because we lived eight miles from Mexico. Um, so they were up there and um, actually, and, and I was always trying to communicate with them because they had great food. And so I would sneak over there when I was like four and they would give me tacos and stuff like this. and. Uh, and I, I love that stuff and chili peppers, uh, but I couldn't understand them. So I got really interested in trying to figure out how to understand them. So my first exposure to another culture and another language was Mexican food and, and Spanish. And uh, that just, that intrigued me all my life. It's, the school that I went to was 70% Spanish speakers. Did you know that that, that was something that you wanted to do? I remember in class, uh, we had to take Spanish class in my school uh, from, from sixth grade on. And I remember my teacher complimenting me. She was Mexican-American and she told me how great my Spanish pronunciation was and even asked me if we spoke Spanish at home. And I was the only one who spoke any. So I responded very well to those compliments. And I thought, this is doesn't seem to be very hard for me. I really like this. Um, so, so that got me interested in languages. Um, but it wasn't until I got into college, well, actually before college, um, I started to get, have religious experiences with the church. And that got me interested in being a missionary. Missionaries would come through and uh, I realized you needed to learn other languages to be a missionary, which was part of the attraction. And um, then I found out more and more about the academics, uh, the, the structure of Spanish, the academics of, uh, I still hadn't heard of linguistics, but the academics of, of, of how languages worked. Okay. And so did you, after you sort of finished high school, you, you went to college or, or university or? Yes, I, I've. I was a terrible student. I failed most of my classes my first three years of high school. I just barely was was passing enough to to advance, and um, and then I met um, and I was a big rock fan and and playing in a lot of rock bands. And I went to uh, a Jimi Hendrix concert in San Diego in 1968, and I was standing out front uh, selling LSD to try to get the money to get in. And uh, this, this really uh, cute girl came up with her boyfriend and I found out she was the sister of a guy I knew, the missionary, the, the, this guy who was raised in Brazil. So I, I made a point of looking her up at school when I got uh, uh, after the concert a couple of days later. And then um, I got interested in her and her family. Her parents would talk to me about the Amazon and about Bible translation, and it was incredibly exciting. I think um, that that's kind of a common story, maybe not for people who enter linguistics, but people who learn a language 
because of a girl or a boy, right? You know. Yeah, 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 right. Yeah, it's, it's a huge, it's a huge attraction. All my early girlfriends were Mexicans, Mexican Americans, and some just straight from Mexico. So uh, I wanted to talk Spanish to be able to talk to my girlfriends. <laughs> In fact, I've I've actually seen some English teachers recommend this as a technique. Uh, like simulated immersion at home. Yeah, it's a wonderful uh, motivator. <laughs> um, and so, and so, after you, after you, well, and then you went to college to study to study linguistics. Actually, I went to college to study Bible. My undergraduate degree is uh, in Bible and theology, and um, these are not particularly useful to me now. But at the time, they were very important, and and a component of that was. Uh, Koine Greek. So we had to learn uh, uh, to read the New Testament in Greek. Um, and, and so I really enjoyed that too. I, I just love learning Greek and reading the New Testament in Greek and showing off that I could read the New Testament in Greek. And uh, then I, when I going into Bible translation, not many people could tell me what was involved in that. But we had decided uh, by this time, the girlfriend was my wife, and we had decided we were going to go into Bible translation. And I heard that uh, to do that, I was going to have to go to uh, the University of Oklahoma after I got out of college and take a course in linguistics. Uh, the missionary organization I wanted to go with uh, had a summer school in o at the University of Oklahoma. So I'm just curious, why, why did they feel that um, studying the Bible in Greek was kind of important. I'm curious about that. Because uh, the New Testament, they wanted you to understand the original languages, and the Bible was written in several languages, Hebrew, Aramaic, and Greek. Um, and, and Koine Greek, since I was gonna translate the New Testament, it was preferred that you not translate from English, but that you translate from the original, because then it's like making a copy of a copy of a copy. You wanna go back to the original, when you make your next copy instead of keep copying the copies. So um, so when I got to, you know, when I, when I actually did Bible translation many years later, um, I would have my Greek New Testament in front of me with a Greek dictionary, and I would have several different English translations and a Portuguese translation, and uh, my knowledge of Peter Han. So the thing was to go through all these translations and look at the decisions people made. Um, and actually, even though, you know, I'm, I'm no longer a fan of Bible translation of that type, it was the best test of my knowledge of the language that anyone could have ever given me. Mm. That, that's really interesting because, you know, again, from my perspective as, a, as, as an English teacher, you know, an ESL teacher, um, one of the, it's actually kind of a bit of a dirty, a dirty word translation in the classroom. You know, a lot of teachers don't recommend it because they feel like it's kind of old fashioned. But, you know, me personally, that's actually the way that I learned Spanish was by teaching Spanish people and having to sort of translate English sentences into Spanish to help them. So I don't know. I don't know. I don't know why, um, why it's fallen so out of favor. If you think you know a language and then you're called upon to say a variety of different things in that language, in other words, translate, um, it, is, it is the single greatest test of your knowledge in my experience. Even more so when you're trying to go from a 2,000 year old book about some 
uh, Hebrew uh, sheep herders um, and, and that had lived in an area with no water and deserts and, and translate this for a group of hunter-gatherers living in an area where water is the thing you want to get rid of because there's too much of it. Um, so, so that was that was quite a challenge, and and it was a very good experience for me. In fact, it not only improved my knowledge of the language, but it eventually led me to question my faith because I started to see um, the lack of any connection whatsoever, conceptually or culturally, with what I had been taught was the truth with a capital T, and what the Pitaha. Uh, lived in their in their uh, daily lives. Oh, well, I mean, th these are questions, you know, questions about language and culture, and about, um, you know, perspectives on the world. These are questions that I'm really excited about, you know, really diving deep into those in, in, in future episodes. But um, l let's go back a little bit to your transition from kind of finishing studying uh, Bible and theology, and then basically your your first venture into into the Amazon as a missionary? Well, uh, I graduated uh, from Moody Bible Institute, number one in my class in 19, December of 1975. And the next step uh, was linguistics training. And after um, two summers of, or actually two semesters of linguistics training uh, from one of the greatest linguists in the world, Kenneth Pike, uh, was my teacher. Um, the next step was jungle training before we could go to Brazil. In fact, if you didn't do well in jungle training, you certainly weren't going to be sent to Brazil to do a translation. It's, it's four and a half months in, um, it, at that time in southern Mexico, in Chiapas. Um, and so so there's there are three phases to it. The first phase is two weeks in Mexico City where you were given orientation to Mexican culture and made a, a gradual adaptation to that culture, which is still so similar to ours. The next phase was taking bus trips down to the uh, San Cristobal de las Casas in, in southern Mexico. Um, and then from there, uh, you had a couple of days uh, to rest up, and then you were flown out into a little center in the middle of the jungle, um, with, which was surrounded by Tseltal Indians, uh, Tseltal people, the descendants of the Maya. Um, and, and so you, you had a number, of, um, a number of assignments. During your first uh, month, you, you primarily worked on uh, learning some Tseltal, some overnight trips, but living in very rustic circumstances with your other missionary wannabes and learning how to, how to butcher, how to can meat, how to, how to, how to sort of survive a bit. Uh, your next phase was uh, what was called advanced base, which is a 50 mile hike much farther out into the jungle, two days, 50 miles. Uh, everybody has to do this. And then you have to build a house. So I had two children and, and a wife, and you're not allowed to use hammer or nails or anything. You have to use jungle materials and a machete. And so I built the house uh, for us, and then you have to make a mud burning, a wood burning mud stove. So I built a stove out of uh, mud and, and wood and, and no tools. And, uh, 
And then when you're done with this and you, you've got your life going more or less and you, you're sort of showing that you know how to do this, then they just, one day with no warning, you're taken out by yourself and left in the jungle for a week uh, with no food and nothing. And you ha you got to survive in the jungle. So it's sort of like television shows today that we see, you know, and uh, naked and afraid, except I did have some clothes on. But, um, but it's sort of like that. You have nothing. And, and uh, I had a machete and, and a couple of other, just a couple of other things because I knew they might call me. So I had a few things stuck in my pockets and stuff, but you're not allowed to take a bag or anything like that of stuff. Wow. And, and I'm wondering if, if do, do you feel like your, your early upbringing kind of on the farm, in the trailer, did, do you think that sort of mentally prepared you for, for maybe something which was quite difficult like that? Uh, yeah, I don't think so. You know, the, the interesting thing about me after 40 years of living in the jungle is I still don't know anything about it. I'm totally inept at this sort of thing. Really? People come with me to the jungle and they think, you know, oh, he's going to know all these knots and he's going to know how to do this stuff. And I still don't know anything. <laughs> That's amazing. I, I was never interested in learning any of that stuff. I just, I was there to do translation and learn the language. And I have a I have a great constitution, so I can put up with a lot of pain. And I do things to, to so like when I was with the Celtal people, they had a big party, and they they were they had this drink that um, women were chewing and spitting up and in a in a pot and letting it ferment, and then it uh, then they they made it into a drink for the men. And so I knew what it was, and we're sitting around this table, just me and these Celtal guys. And they said, would you like to try this? I said, oh, yeah, it looks great, you know. And uh, uh, so I had some, and they said, how was it? And I said, wonderful. I hated it. But I said it was wonderful. And so they said, oh, most people from the outside don't like it. So they brought me a big bowl. And, uh, and I drank it. And then I was up all night with diarrhea and throwing up and had to be taken out to the hospital with my blood pressure 60 over 40. I had typhoid fever. and Oh, my God. But, you know that's just part of the life to me. So that kind of stuff, you know, I'm good at, I'm, I'm, I'm basically tough. So I, I, but I, you know, I, I would do it all over again, even though I can tell you, it's not, probably not a good idea to just eat and drink anything that's put in front of you. Uh, I, that's what I do. And, and I find that that's extremely important. And, and I'm very grateful that whatever made me what I am, and it could be the farm life, and it could be growing up around people so different. The, the poverty I saw among the Mexican laborers, farm laborers, and the hard work that I saw from them inspired me my entire life. Uh, so poverty never shocked me, and hard work never scared me. Um, and, and so although I still can't tie a knot. You know, every time I tie something onto my truck, it falls off two miles down the road. And uh, when I tie things on the back of the motorcycle, I look back there and it's just dragging along the road. So I got to get off and tie it about 13 times before I get where I'm going. But uh, um, so although I'm inept at it, I'm, I, I love it. I enjoy it. And uh, so I, uh, that was my first experience in Southern Mexico. And, and I just loved uh, being with the Celtal people and eating their chili peppers. And because I was raised around Mexicans, this was like home to me. Even though they're not, in a technical sense, Mexicans. They're, I mean, they're citizens of Mexico, but they're descendants of the Mayans. But that's where all the food I like came from. Chili peppers and corn tortillas and beans. 
That's my favorite food on the planet, and that was the source. So I was happy as could be. <laughs> well, actually, you you mentioned quite a few times in this book about um about hot sauce, you know, Tabasco and beans and yeah. spicy. Yeah, yeah. No, I totally understand that. I, I love spicy food too. Um, so so after this training, you know, there there came the day when they wanted to literally drop you in the jungle with you know to to meet the Peter Huns. And I mean, do you remember that that day? Oh, I remember it extremely well, yes. So we had set up a time uh, for someone who knew the Pitaha but didn't speak the language to take me in. He was a familiar face to the Pitaha. So I flew across Brazil. We had just come to Brazil uh, two weeks before and I was in Belém, which is on the, the mouth of the Amazon, and the Pitaha are way at the other end. So I flew uh, seven hours uh, with plenty of you know landings and takeoffs across Brazil, landed, we did some shopping for, for a, a day, we did a day shopping, me and this guy, and then the plane flew us out and, and left us off. And I, it's a small little single engine Cessna uh, me and, and this guy, basically a, he was a mechanic and uh, I didn't speak a word of Pinaha. His, his Portuguese was pretty good. Uh, we landed, I was just, I was so sick. I just wanted to throw up. I was so airsick. I hate those planes uh, today. I would, I would rather take a, a two week boat trip than a two hour flight. So, so we got there, but I couldn't throw up or anything because we were surrounded by Pinahas. We landed in an airstrip right in the middle of their biggest village, and um, they all were interested to see me. The previous missionary who spoke their language told them that uh, a red-headed guy was going to come and take his place. So they, they were excited to meet me, um, and they were all talking to me, and I just started applying my linguistics training. And so to the shock of this other guy who had visited them many times but couldn't say a word, Within a few minutes, I was saying sentences to them and repeating. I mean, I was basically just mimicking, but I was, I was inventing. I mean, I was coming up with sentences. I was figuring out the word order and stuff. And so, by the end of the three or four days, that actually, I guess we were there for a week. Maybe it was even more than a week. It was ten days. Our first visit was ten days. By the end of that time, I was saying uh, quite a bit to them, and he was just astounded by it. Um, and I remember thinking that, A, this is a lot of fun. I love this, and I love the jungle. And B, this is going to take the rest of my life. <laughs> you, you knew that. You knew that immediately. Yeah, yeah. I know this is going to take me the rest of my life. But I, that evening, our first evening there, um, Don, the guy who went with me, made some coffee. And I walked out to the river's edge, the edge of the Mycenae River, and I'm just... It's a gorgeous day. The evenings in the jungle are so beautiful. And I'm standing there by myself watching the Mycenae River and suddenly two porpoise jump out of the river. And I did not know there were porpoise in the Amazon. <laughs> I didn't know anything. I, I was a total ignoramus. And I was just so astounded to see these two porpoise jump out of the river, two small gray porpoises. Uh, there's a big pink dolphin as well, but I, it doesn't get up that far. But and then I saw manatees and stingrays and anacondas. I didn't see them all right then at that time, but over the next uh, 
few months, I saw all these animals and, and I saw, I remember looking at the sky and seeing 18 orange macaws fly across the sky, really low, you know, I could just, just not, just high enough so the Pinaha couldn't shoot them with arrows, but uh, um, I was astounded by the beauty of the place. And, and I said, boy, you'd have to pay a lot of money to come here and do this. And then I thought, oh, actually I did. <laughs> The great sense of privilege and honor I felt to be there with these people um, in this place, uh, coming from that little farm I came from in Southern California. This was a long ways from there. And uh, I remember the first time I came back five years later, it was the first time I ever, I hadn't talked, we didn't have phones back then. I mean, it was too expensive to talk. There was no internet, there was no satellite phone. Uh, I didn't even get a shortwave radio for a while, so I, I hadn't heard much news about the U.S., hadn't heard anything at all, and I got back to show the pictures to my brother and sister and other members of my family, so I showed them slides, and they just looked at me, and they said, why in the hell would you want to do that? And I thought, okay, so I can't communicate with my family anymore because this is the greatest thing in my life, and to them, it's a total waste of time. Well, it's actually like when, when you read the book, you know, there, there's definitely sort of large passages in the book where you, you just talk about the natural beauty of the place and, and you, you, you actually describe it as paradise quite a few times, you know, yes. like lying in this river and, you know, just the beauty of the jungle. Yeah, it's, it's just hard to describe. It is true that from 10 a.m. to 5 p.m., it's extremely hot and humid. But from 5 p.m. to 10 a.m., it's a beautiful place. And even the hot and humidity, for the people, it just means they don't need to worry about clothes. You know, it takes one worry off their mind. Um, and I found that if I get really hot, I can just, which I don't tend to, because Southern California actually gets hotter, although it's dry. And I would run out and jump in the river and come back and work sopping wet and be totally comfortable. So how did you sort of cope with maybe... Uh, because I think when, when people think about living in the jungle, they think about, you know, stuff like snakes, spiders, mosquitoes. I mean, how, how was that sort of element of life in the jungle? Well, it was certainly there. I killed, I don't know how many poisonous snakes in our house and around our house. And I, I you know, behind our bed, there was a bushmaster coming up the pole right behind our bed one morning when I got up. There was a mosquito net between us and him, but he was a big snake. And you know, I, I got up and killed him, and, uh, um, you know, the Pitaha thought that was pretty funny. Oh, look, he knows how to kill snakes, you know. So they would call me when they found poisonous snakes. Hey, kill that one, you know. <laughs> so so what, what, did, what did they do if they found a snake? They would just leave it alone? Uh, no, they would shoot it with an arrow, but they wouldn't get close to it. But since I'm no good at shooting with arrows, I would have to get – I would get their bow and just go club it to death, and they – you know, they thought this was hilarious because I would get so agitated killing this poisonous, was a big poisonous snake. I remember one time we, uh, we went hunting for an anaconda and this shows you their skill. How can you hunt for an anaconda? I mean, how, how in the world would you know where it is? So um, we, they, I take them up in my motorboat. They said, go over here, there's holes over here under the water. And so I went over there and they said, well, there's the hole right there, you see? I said, yeah, I don't see anything. The water is dark green and the snake is dark green. I don't see anything. And so um, the guy picks up his bow and arrow and he stands at the front of the boat and he 
five, well, no, first he took his bowl and he, he sort of stirred around in the hole. And um, he said, that'll probably get him to come out. And um, he said, yeah, he's coming out. See? No. And I, he stood up and fired two arrows right into the water. And suddenly this big anaconda comes shooting out of the top with two arrows in the head. And he says, uh, let's pull it in the boat. And this thing is slapping its tail around and trying to bite, but it's got an arrow right through the head. So it's hard for it to, to do anything, but it's certainly not dead. And um, I said, so what are we going to do with it? He said, we're going to take it back and scare the women with it. Uh, <laughs> so, so we throw this big old anaconda in the boat and we go back to the village and, and uh, the thing, you know, tries to bite me. And so I take the paddle and beat it to death. And they're laughing. They thought that was the funniest thing they ever saw. You know, he's got an arrow in his head and you're beating it. And uh, so then they pulled the arrows out of its head. It was totally dead. I beat its head in. And, <laughs> and then they, they put it right in the water so it looked like it was in weight. And they said, okay, so when the next woman comes down, she's going to be scared. This is some universality of male humor there. <laughs> well, that, that's exactly right. It shows, you know, some things men just do in all cultures, right? <laughs> <laughs> Well, they certainly, they certainly do that. They, they, nothing that they enjoy more than scaring people, especially women and children. <laughs> and, and it is actually true that, because you know, I've seen films where they portray like giant anacondas, and I thought that was a Hollywood myth. But you actually describe this anaconda in, in the book that's, that's like huge, like, like a, as big as you. In fact, some people who read the book said that that was evidence that I was lying, because, but I saw it. Well, my family was coming out and uh, we, we went out of the Maisi into the Madeira. We were coming out with our own boat. And um, so the Maisi flows into a larger river called the Marmelos, which flows into the Madeira. Now the Madeira eventually flows into the Amazon, but the Madeira by itself is bigger than the Mississippi in the US. It's an enormous river. And where the Marmelos comes into it, it's two miles across. So there's huge things in the Madeira. And you can't see beneath the surface because it's muddy water. So there are a lot of logs. That's why it's called the Madeira, the Wood River, So because of all the logs and everything floating in it. And so I see this huge log up in front of us, and I keep going. And then I realize the log looks like it's undulating, you know. And then I realize, well, it's coming right for us, you know, and then that's against the current. And so... It got right up on us, and it was an enormous anaconda, and the head was bigger than my head. And, and um, I don't know how deep it was. We were right at the shore, but I would suspect it was at least 10 feet deep there. And, and then uh, the anaconda came towards the boat, so I swerved and hit it with the prop, with the, with the motor. And um, then it disappeared, and then suddenly it reappeared, the entire length of the snake coming out, right by the boat so I could see the white underbelly of the snake. And I'm, it, it was towering over the boat. So it had to have been 15, 20 feet. And then it fell back on its back. And I, I have no idea why I went backwards instead of forwards because it had come, could have come right into the boat. So people denied that that's possible. I contacted a herpetologist at the University of Florida and he said, it is possible 
But if however deep the water was, it's that much deeper because its tail had to be on the bed of the river to be able to do that. <laughs> well, I don't know if that's better or worse. Oh my God. So, it, and my daughter, who's who's now a a, a school teacher in North Carolina, um, was reading a comic book in Portuguese, and then looked and saw the snake fully up like this. Nobody but me had seen the snake coming towards the boat. And and she says, oh, wow. <laughs> that was her reaction. You know, typical reaction. Oh, wow, a, a, a gigantic snake. Yeah, yeah, it was. And, and I, I just, I had never seen anything like it because the anaconda that we killed that day was about 12 feet long. And it was just an insignificant little worm compared to this one. I also learned that anacondas are like goldfish. They'll, they'll grow as large as their environment allows them to grow. So that sort of brings me on to another question, because obviously you were living in, in the jungle with your family. Maybe some people would think you're sort of crazy for taking children into that environment. Um, I mean, you know, well, what's it like for children living there? Well, there is a certain sense in which it is crazy, and I don't know if I would do it again, but at that time I was a fervent believer, uh, and that, and I believe very strongly that uh, this is what God wanted for me to do, and that it would be good for the children, and that he would take care of them, unless it was their time to go, and what's that, you know, that's the way things go, you know. Uh, so, so it was a strange decision, but they're all grateful that they grew up there. And I talked to them a lot. I said, is it hard to forgive me for taking you to the jungle when you were little and all your early experience? No, no, that's great. It's wonderful. You know, um, I think that it really did help them all. It got them their interests that are still with them today. Um, you know, my son is the head of the Department of Anthropology at the University of Miami. And uh, his his first book from Harvard Press was about uh, numbers and the making of us groups that don't have numbers. He's where he starts because he was raised in one. Um, and and my middle daughter got interested in medicine at that time, and now she's a a doctor of nursing practice and works for CVS pharmacies. And her interest in medicine came from watching us suture wounds and treat people for malaria and our own sicknesses in the jungle. And my um, uh, my oldest daughter was always interested in children and especially helping children that had any kind of disability. So she's a special ed, uh, special needs teacher in North Carolina now. Wow. So um, it definitely hasn't hurt their, their careers or their academic potential or anything like that, has it? <laughs> no, it hasn't. You know, when I took them to uh, the States, when we moved back to the States after so many years living in Brazil, the, the U.S. schools didn't know what to do with them. They said, well, they have had such an irregular education, we'll probably have to put them back a couple of years. I said, actually, you could probably put them forward a couple of years. Whatever you got, they'll, they'll excel at it. So my oldest daughter it was her senior year of high school, and they put her in, um, in all, she took all the advanced college prep courses, and she got 4.0, and it was her first time being in a US school system. And I said, you know, after the Brazilian school system and after what she's been through, this is really not that hard. But obviously when, when you were living in the jungle, you had to kind of homeschool them, right? Yeah, we homeschooled them in both in Brazilian and Portuguese studies, you know, you know, Brazilian history and these sorts of things. So they did an accredited Brazilian system and they did an accredited US correspondent school. So, so in, a, in a sense, 
they had a double education. They, they finished their Brazilian uh, equivalent of, my oldest daughter finished the Brazilian equivalent of high school and my other's junior high. And uh, they all finished then the American accredited system. And they came back and did high school in the US. So let's talk a little bit more specifically now about the actual kind of Peter Hunt people, because you've spent, yeah. what, like a huge part of your life living with them and and researching them and, you know, they're your friends. And so, you know, for, for people who don't know anything about them, like what's sort of special about their culture? Well, there there's some of the um, few remaining hunter-gatherers. There aren't many hunter-gatherers, really hunter-gatherer people left in the world. That alone is interesting because all humans started off as hunter-gatherers. Homo erectus was hunter-gatherer, early Homo sapiens, Homo neanderthals, uh, all the early species of Homo were hunter-gatherers. Agriculture didn't come along until extremely late in our history as a species. So that's interesting. But, but also what's interesting is um, the idea that, that took years to sort of soak into my head is how much culture affects language because uh, the Pinaha don't have words for numbers, not even the number one. All of these claims have subsequently been tested by uh, a number of people. I've taken over 25 scientists over the course of the last 30 years to do experiments and, and, and check, uh, test my claims. Uh, so no numbers, not even the number one. They don't have ex you know, words for color. They describe colors, but they don't have any words for color. These already violate some of the most important proposals on human universals. Um, they, uh, they have the simplest kinship system known. They don't have words for, you know, the, um, their, their basic vocabulary is my generation, male and female are the same. Uh, uh, the generation above me, male and female are the same. So there's no word for mother or father. There's a word for parent. There's no word for brother or sister. There's a word for sibling. Uh, and everybody of my generation is my sibling. Um, they do recognize their biological siblings, but there's no special word for biological siblings. There is just, uh, you know, if you want to get technical, they'll say we came from the same mother. Um, and and um, then there's a, a word for child, which is anyone in the generation below me. Um, and then there's term for biological son and biological daughter. These are the only gender specific kinship terms they have. And then that's it. So it's the simplest kinship system ever documented. Um, they have no creation myths. So, so after years of trying to work with them, um, on, on, you know, because as a Christian missionary, you want to know what their view is. What did they, how do they think God created the world? Well, first, they don't believe in God. There's no God. Uh, second, there's no creation. Um, you know, some people believe that they've discovered such things over the years. Um, but what, but everybody who makes this claim doesn't, they don't speak the language. So the Pinaha speaks some broken Portuguese and will talk to anthropologists and others and sort of repeat stories they have heard from Christian missionaries and others, so that some people who go in come out with the impression that they have these myths and things. 
But if you're working in their language, listening to their stories and interviewing them in their language, which is really the only way to work about these things, there are no such things in their language. They don't have these stories. So that's, that's fascinating. Um, you know, the fact that it's a, it's a tribe of uh, basically atheists uh, and, and an anarchy, an, an anarchy. It's a perfectly functioning anarchy because there's no leadership. There's nobody who's in charge. One of the, if there, you know, if there's a concept of, of sin and what you ought not to do, it is don't tell other people what to do and don't lose your temper and don't hurt people. You can steal from them. You can have sex with their spouses. That kind of stuff is pretty minor. Uh, in fact, it's stealing is like insignificant because nobody has anything. Uh, <laughs> so there's, there's really very little to steal. And if I wasn't watching it, well, go ahead and have it. I don't care. Um, and, and if, you know, if my spouse wants to go off with you, well, I'm probably, I'm not real happy about that, but, uh, you know, th those things happen in life. Uh, and that's their view sort of, of these things. But it, if you yell at somebody, if you, you know, a, a guy asked me one time, he said, these kids are a foreigner who came in with me, uh, uh, actually a well-known linguist. I won't mention his name. He said, um, these kids are screaming all the time. What would happen if I swatted one on the butt? I said, well, they would kill you. <laughs> the people would kill you. So you don't mess, you don't hurt their children. You don't assault people. You don't get angry. You don't tell other people what to do. They don't tell other people what to do. Well, another thing that you, that you talk about in the book, especially towards the end, as you're sort of summarizing, you know, what, what the, what the people are and, 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 you know, the effect they had on you, you describe them as the happiest people on earth. Yeah, I have worked with over 20 indigenous groups in Brazil, uh, Mexico, and North America. I have traveled around the world many times, um, also as dean on Semester at Sea, a ship that takes students around the world. Um, and so I noticed that the Pinaha are the people that I know who smile the most, who laugh the most, who are, seem least worried. But many visitors who have been with me, uh, and we're talking some who are really well-known psychologists, you know, from institutions like Stanford and MIT and UCLA, have all made the same comment. You know, one, one guy said, these look like the happiest people in the world. And I said, well, how would you, how would you measure that? What, well, I would just uh, measure the time they spend laughing and smiling and compare it to any other group. And I bet they come out ahead. Um, that sounds like one way to do it. It's fairly plausible. Um, you know, so I can't say with any certainty that they're the happiest people in the world, but they certainly are the happiest people I know. So for, for better or for worse, one of the kind of things that's, that's defined your sort of professional career as a, as a linguist is this um, kind of disagreement between what you discovered when you were working with the Peter Han people and, you know, the, the kind of the world of Chomsky and, and universal grammar. So we're going to talk more in more detail about this in another, in another episode, but what was it that was really interesting that you discovered about the, the Peter Hun language? Well, I, I might say first that um, 
I was, Chomsky was my hero. I mean, all the linguistics that I did after I started graduate education was Chomskyan linguistics. And after I finished my PhD in 1983, I spent the 84-85 school year uh, at MIT with my office next to Chomsky's, and we talked a lot. And in those early years, I thought that Pitaha, like all languages, just was explained beautifully by Chomsky's theory. It was only, um, you know, as I became more fluent in the language, and I tried the translation and realized that a lot of the structures I had thought were okay just didn't make any sense to the Pitaha, which uh, are, are recursive structures, which I'm sure we'll uh, talk about more, which is just subordinate clauses and, and complex adjectives and these sorts of things they didn't have. I also realized that I really had no explanation for so many of the things that I was seeing. And there was no explanation in anybody's theory about the connections between whistle speech and spoken speech, between um, the lack of kinship terms and certain suffixes, for example, that indicate you have to give direct evidence. And if you have a great, 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 great grandfather, there's no direct evidence for that person, right? Unless you've got their letters, but the Pitaha wouldn't have such letters. So I began to. I began to suspect very strongly that there was a connection between all of this stuff. These weren't just isolated weird facts, but that the Pitaha were the possessors of an incredibly intricate, interesting system that was utterly unlike what any modern linguistic theory predicted that it would be like. And um, so I didn't come out initially and say everybody's wrong and look at this, this is, but I did write several people with anomalous facts and ask them, and, and some people would just write back rude responses. You better think again, because that's not the way things work. In fact, I, you know, I would get people writing, sending me postcards after, this was before email, right? Seeing, after publication saying, you can't possibly know what you're talking about. This is not how language works. Well, I'm a sort of combative person, so um, if you say that to me, um, well, I'm going to look for more evidence. And um, but did that ever, at any moment, make you doubt yourself? Maybe if 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 some of these people who are maybe, you know, uh, lots of experience and in in very high positions, did you ever did it did it maybe shake your confidence? Uh, actually, it never did because um, I knew that I was good at linguistics, and I knew that I knew Peter Ha better than anybody else who had ever lived, not because it was a lot of competition, right? There was nobody else. No, I was the guy. Uh, so, so, but I knew that I knew this language fairly well. And I knew that I knew the theory very well. I was confident in that knowledge. And I was, um, I gave a lot of talks in Brazil and, and talks other places and people would try to argue with me. And I saw that actually that's not that hard to argue with these people. They're just, they're, these are just knee jerk reactions. These aren't, I never got a serious question that I couldn't answer. Nobody's, not Chomsky, nobody. And it's not because I'm smarter than they are, it's just because I know the facts. These are the facts. Um, and um, so no, but it did determine that I needed to get independent evidence. I realized that, um, you know, making these claims, you know, I'm just, uh, 
uh, Joe Blow down here in the jungle saying that, oh, by the way, you're all wrong because I happen to know these 40 people that, that don't talk like that. And I mean, this is not, uh, this is not impressive to a lot of scientists who have big laboratories and this sort of thing. So I would invite other people to come, come down, you know, and my first paper that was very controversial that I wrote with my ex-wife, Karen, um, was on how the accentual system worked in the language. You wouldn't think this would be controversial, but in fact, there were very um, specific theories on how this would work, and the PETA didn't work like that. And that was the first time I started getting hate mail, you know, although some people thought it was good. Uh, some professor at the University of Washington in Seattle wrote me and said, we've We've stopped teaching the textbook this week. We're just talking about Peter Ha after this article came out. What a bombshell. So then the world's number one uh, phonetician uh, at the time, Peter Latifoged, who's gone now, um, came to Brazil to work with me. And I picked him up at the airport and he said, uh, he said, well, I got to tell you, there's a lot of people who are very skeptical. And so I, that's why I've come. And I, I said, well, on the one hand, it's like being audited by the IRS. So that's fine. You know, yeah, I'm going to get my taxes audited here. Uh, but on the other hand, um, you bring all your instruments, we'll get them all set up, you do all your work. And what your conclusion is, is Dan's right. I'll predict that for you right now. Right. <laughs> <laughs> and Peter, I, I love him to pieces. We got to be such good friends, but that really irritated him, which was the desire to fit. And, uh, <laughs> And, and so we set up the experiments and then I walked away and he, he, I said, they know what to do. I don't want to be here while you're doing the experiments because I don't want anyone to ever come back and say, Dan subtly manipulated the results. So I'm not even going to be in a present. And he thought that made sense. So, um, so that was the first thing. And he, you know, he, he said, well, uh, you're right. <laughs> Uh, I said, well, what a big surprise. You had to come all the way down here from Los Angeles to tell me what I know. But, but, but it was really, really important that he came down and he was, you know, he, he was going to tell the truth, whatever he found. I knew that. And that's why I wanted him to come. So, so we planned for about a year for him to make this trip. And uh, it wasn't uh, a spur of the moment thing. And he was just the first of many that came. They had people come down and do experiments on color, come down and do uh, investigation of the kinship system. I've had people, you know, we've done extensive experimentation on the numerical system to show that they don't have numbers. Um, and then independently of that work, uh, my son also did experiments there. And, and despite all of this, despite all of the kind of independent evidence, um, Chomsky, who, who, you know, most people, they call him, you know, the father of modern linguistics, he, he actually, you know, openly, he called you a charlatan. He, he did it recently as well, too. Um, a, a group of students in an honors program in a U.S. college um, were given the assignment of writing their final essay on the dispute between me and Chomsky. And... Um, so they wrote me and they wrote Chomsky and Chomsky wrote back to them and they forwarded his email to me. It says, everything he says is a lie. He's a total fraud and, and nobody pays attention to him. And um, I said, well, it's not a lie. It's not a fraud. And ask him for one shred of evidence he has to back that up. So he still says this sort of thing. Um, 
I take it that that means that it really bothers him. And I know that it bothers him because he, um, you know, he, I've, I've challenged him to debate me openly at Linguistic Society of America meetings. I said, I'll debate you. I'll debate any of the people who support you. You just tell me when and where and I'll be there. And uh, he said, well, there's nothing to debate. And I said, yeah, but then you've, you've certainly used a lot of ink to say why I'm wrong if there's nothing to debate. It sounds to me like there is something to debate. And if the two of us got out in the open, you could show me for the charlatan and idiot that I am. I, I told him this in email. And um, so, um, you know, there's a whole new book out um, from Cambridge University Press about me. It's basically a book-length attack on my analyses. And who, who wrote that book? It's an edited volume of a lot of people. Uh, it's, it's edited, um, uh, the American editor, uh, there are two Brazilian editors and an American editor and a British editor, and the American editor is um, uh, a well-known psycholinguist who's a huge, they're all huge Chomsky supporters. But the introduction to the book says uh, that they're trying to respond to Everett's challenge. And if I am right, Chomsky is wrong. And so that's what the, the book is to show that Chomsky is right and Everett is wrong. But um, they don't do that. And so an MIT professor, Ted Gibson, and I have a review of this book coming out in the journal language, uh, a long review in which we take each one of their claims, each one of their uh, bits of evidence and show that none of it follows um, because they don't speak the language. The, the problem is there are no shortcuts in figuring out languages and how they work. You can't just take a speaker who's not even a native speaker of the language, which they have done, and just work with them for a couple of hours and think, okay, now I've figured this all out. That is a That disrespects the very nature of what field research is. When I read something by a field researcher, uh, I don't care what theory they're from or what I think of their theoretical background. I can tell they did their work. I can tell they paid their dues and I respect their conclusions, even if I don't agree with them. And uh, in my old age, I don't agree with many people about many things, but, uh, but I certainly respect how they got these data. And if they learn to speak the language, you know, um, I've had many, many PhDs in linguistics say, you always say we need to learn the language first, but who has the time for that? I said, well, if you don't have the time for it, go into another line of work, because we're talking about how well you do the job, not when, how long it takes you to get your dissertation. That dissertation doesn't matter at all. If you haven't learned the language, you don't know what you're talking about. And that's controversial. Well, you know, it's funny because, you know, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm an, I'm an English teacher and I'm really interested in language and especially the science of language, but I'm an outsider, right? And it, it, and I think that anyone who's an outsider to the world of language, it seems so patently obvious that to study language, especially if you're trying to compare languages without learning them, it's just ludicrous, right? I mean, and, and, and this is something that you, yeah. you talk about, you talk about in the book that the, the, the sort of Chomskyan idea that you can kind of take language and reduce it to almost like a more of a mathematical kind of an analytical thing and you can study it from the safety of the laboratory that's changed the way that linguistics 
has been studied for what, 50 years, maybe? Well, actually, for over 100 years, because um, prior to Chomsky, who's not the father of modern linguistics. Sure. That's what they call him. But yeah. No, he is called that a lot. He's called that a lot, not just by you, but by many linguists. But he's the father of his theory. He's not the father of linguistics. Linguistics was around and healthy for over a even modern linguistics for over a hundred years before Chomsky. You know, Charles Sanders Peirce back in the 19th century was doing brilliant work on the nature of human language. But then you also had um, Franz Boas and his group of anthropological linguists at Columbia University. My hero is Edward Sapir, who didn't live that long. He was only 54 when he died in 1939 that he was one of the best field linguists of all time. Uh, he was a very good field linguist. He, and then my first teacher, who was heavily influenced by Sapir, was Kenneth Pike, who was um, a brilliant, brilliant linguist. He was not that articulate. He wrote a lot, but people found it difficult to read it. He didn't capture you like Chomsky does. And, um, and some of it was, you know, wasn't, I don't know how good it it was, but a lot of it was brilliant. And, and, and so he was doing ling linguistics long before Chomsky came along. So to call Chomsky the father of modern linguistics to him would have been an insult. I mean, what was I doing, you know? Um, and and um, so, so Chomsky, however, has, be, you know, he, he uh, developed, you said, like a computer, like a mathematical system. That's actually the environment in which he grew up in. And he went to Harvard uh, when he was in his 20s and spent four years there, surrounded by the people doing uh, computer science and, and mathematics. And he wanted to turn linguistics into a science. And he based his theory of linguistics on computational uh, computer science. I mean, he, he now he calls human language the human computational system. And... Uh, I don't think computers have uh, languages. I don't think, uh, you know, prologue to me, none of, none of the so-called languages to me are languages. They don't have culture. They don't tell jokes. You know, they're just codes. And a language is not a code. It's far more than that. Um, if you could, somebody said, uh, what do you think of so-and-so system that reduces language to logic? And I said, if you could reduce a language to logic, it would be a subhuman language because languages are far more powerful and far richer than any logical language. There's just too much, just to take one example, logic is not ambiguous or vague. Human languages are ambiguous and vague. This is not a defect. This is a tremendous advantage because there are a lot of times when I'm talking to somebody, I don't want to say exactly what I mean. You know, politicians say, I say what I mean and I mean what I say. Nobody does that. It's not. That's not how language is designed. Language is designed so you can say and not let people know what you mean. And you can mean and not have to say it. You can say other things. So, you know, if, I, if you say, how is so-and-so as a linguist? And I say, he has great handwriting. Um, I didn't tell you how he was as a linguist directly, but you know, you can infer it. And this is what's so great about it. If you know the culture, you know that if I don't give you an answer that is that addresses your question that I thought your question, you know, I, I couldn't answer it directly, right? Um, and this is how human language works. That's not, you can talk about the logical properties of that, but it's not a purely logical system. 
you know, I love languages because they reflect the human beings that speak them and not an underlying abstract system. There, are, there is some of that. I'm not denying that there is such a thing called grammar. When I was in eighth grade and we had the diagram sentences and the Reed Kellogg diagrams, I thought I had died and gone to heaven. I love that. I love diagramming sentences. And I think that had a lot to do with me becoming a linguist. You know, I love Spanish. I love learning Greek. I love diagramming the sentences. I love learning the verb paradigms. The whole mechanics, this is what Chomsky would call the computational aspects of language. I love them. Uh, these, these are things that brought me into language. But, but they don't define language for you. No. In fact, it turns out that they're a really, really small little thing. You know, you, so you can teach someone the, all the verb paradigms of Portuguese, but when you go to Brazil, nobody does that. Nobody uses those things. They use things that you have to figure out the individual system in every place, and it's reflected in the culture. You know, so um, it's supposed to be completely uh, ungrammatical to use, for example, the first person plural pronoun with a third person singular verb. Like, but this happens all the time in Portuguese and colloquial Portuguese. And, and, um, and so you have different registers, which already shows the impact of culture on language. You use one grammar in one environment and one grammar in another environment. And, and we do the same in literacy. As soon as somebody learns how to read and write, culture takes over and the written language becomes quite different from the spoken language. Yeah, and, and you know, uh, in my experience as an English teacher, you know, that, that, that same kind of system is reflected. You know, there are, I would say millions, there are millions of students out there right now who can do a worksheet and fill in the blanks and conjugate their verbs, and you couldn't have a conversation with them at all. Right. You, you see this, I mean, this is typical uh, of, of students everywhere. You know, they, they want to think of language, uh, learning English or learning Spanish or learning French like learning mathematics. But whereas you can learn a lot of mathematics from a book, you can't learn a lot of language from a book. The book is an assistant. But when I got to Brazil for the first time, I was uh, 26 and I didn't speak a word of Portuguese, not a word. And so um, I got every book I could find. And, but mainly I lived in a Brazilian neighborhood and I paid all my neighbors um, that I could get to do this to come talk to me. And they only got paid if they corrected me. So if they didn't correct me, I said, I can't use your help. You're not helping me. You know, so they would come and, and these, um, you know, teenagers and adults and older people, and they would just come and sit and talk to me for an hour each and correct my pronunciation and tell me we don't talk like that. We say it this way. So I would learn something from the book. I would apply it. They would throw it in the trash or they would, uh, you know, revise it or sometimes just accept it. And that's how I learned. And, and when I went to the towns, the cities, my wife already spoke Portuguese because she grew up in Brazil. And I would tell her, I said, you know, I don't want to tell you, you can't talk, but if you talk, I won't learn uh, because you already know how to talk. So please allow me to do most of the talking because otherwise I'm not going to learn. I'm just going to depend on you all the time. And so she was happy to watch laugh at my mistakes because I made so many mistakes, but then eventually I didn't make so many. Um, but only then could I, was I in a position to start thinking, how does Portuguese work? How does the grammar of the language work? I was not in a position to even think this question intelligently 
until I spoke the language. Hmm. Which is the reverse of how most people attack language learning, right? They start with the grammar and then move on to the understanding, right? Yeah. Well, I mean, I'm really looking forward to talking about, you know, about sort of language and culture. And, um, and in the next episode, we're going to talk more specifically about the Peter Hun language. To finish off today's episode, so here we are now, it's 2019, and you know, you, you sort of find yourself in a position where, you know, although your work has been confirmed by, you know, so many different specialists, you know, from f for the world of phonetics and the world of, you know, um, psychology and all of this stuff, you know, you still find yourself as a kind of controversial figure, maybe. In 2019, where is Dan Everett? Well, I'm writing a book on a much more controversial figure, Charles Sanders Peirce, who I think was the smartest person ever born in this country, in the United States. And he certainly, in my opinion, he could have been the most intelligent person in the world since Aristotle. And that includes Newton and Mozart and Einstein. I mean, he, he was a brilliant guy. He was cantankerous. He was controversial. And part of the reason he was controversial and part of the reason he died in poverty was that he told people that were very powerful that they were stupid. You know, he he didn't, he was a controversial guy because he was just interested in calling them like he saw them, telling the truth as he understood it. And he probably had a little bit of Asperger's syndrome or something where he couldn't fully sense the impact socially of his, of his words. So he was fired and he got in lots of trouble. Uh, I'm not quite that bad. I have a good job. Um, but at the same time, I don't hesitate to say what I think. I don't go out of my way to be rude to people or tell people this is just wrong. Although, you know, when I write, um, if I think that there's a different way to do it, I have to say why the other ways are wrong. And, and this is never a f received with open arms. Um, and so, it is true that there is a certain sense in which I have brought some of this on myself by saying these things so boldly and saying, you know, if, if this is right, this can't be right. Um, but that's in my constitution. I have no way to act other than that. Um, and so there's no point in me trying to be anything else. Um, but on the other hand, I'm tough skinned. So uh, the reaction, you know, I, I sometimes, it just doesn't it just doesn't bother me what does bother me is that it's affected my ability to go back to the jungle and do more research because um because the people that hold the the keys are um are theoreticians opposed to my my work but other than that um i have plenty to keep me busy I'm, I'm extremely happy. It, it uh, really makes me feel good to see my son going beyond me in linguistics. Um, and, and uh, you know, he's getting in trouble too because he's saying things that you're not supposed to say, like climate affects our sound systems. You know, this is not supposed to have any influence on our sound systems. The fact that um, humidity can affect whether you're going to have a tone language or not. Um, you know, so all kinds of really cool stuff that are well, um, well established, published in the top journals, and 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 I think that in a sense, he he really doesn't like controversy. Uh, I I suppose I do like it a little bit, 
Um, I had, when Chomsky first called me a charlatan, I got an email from a very famous linguist who said, I would think I had died and gone to heaven if he called me a charlatan. <laughs> I said, like I said, he doesn't even pay attention to my work. <laughs> oh, I know what you mean. It's a bit like um, if if Scarlett Johansson, um, you know, called me an idiot, I'd just be happy that she knew who I was. <laughs> exactly, exactly right. Except I find no romantic interest in Chomsky. <laughs> <laughs> and and it's funny because. Um, you know, if you if you read some of the stuff that's been written about you online, you know, it paints it paints a picture of you as a kind of, you know, as deceptive and, and all this horrible stuff. And then, you know, talking to you, um, you know, you're just such a nice guy. And in fact, isn't that one of the criticisms of you is that you're just too nice? So therefore, there must be something wrong. Yeah, I saw I saw something written about me um, in some discussion. I think it was Reddit. And they said, but he seems so charming. And the one guy said, yeah, that's exactly the problem. You know that he's deceptive because he's so charming. And, you know, I don't, uh, you know, I don't know. I was, uh, I was a, an ordained minister for 25 years. And, um, and part of what you learn is how to talk to people. So, um, but I just, I enjoy people. I, I, I like people, in, at least in the abstract, I like people. So, uh, um, yeah. I don't know what else to say. Yeah, I mean, it's it's a difficult charge to defend. Uh, what what can you do? People think I'm too nice. What should I do? Be horrible? I don't know what to you know. Um, so so just to finish up, what what is your sort of what is your hope for this um, this series about language? What what is it that you hope to to transmit to to people who 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 are watching and listening? I represent not only my own views but a very large and, and deep tradition of the study of language that integrates society and culture and the way people communicate as, as uh, so integrated and so connected that it's po impossible to study one without the other. Um, and so I wouldn't want people to think that my principal views are, are unique to me. I have a lot of unusual views, but they come from a very old and venerable tradition. And I want people to know that there are many ways to think about language. And I do not claim that it's my way or the highway. What I do say is that there's a number of, there's a lot of evidence that has not traditionally been considered in, under, in the understanding of human language, at least not in the past 50 years. And it ought to be considered and here are my reasons why it should be considered. That's probably my main message to give.